The truth lives. Political bomb show starring Rayshawn Blyden. Welcome to Political Bomb Show. I'm your host, Rayshawn Blyden. You can visit our website, politicalbombshow.cf. Politicalbombshow.cf. Today we're talking with John from Texas. He's a Mormon. And we talk politics. We talk about the things that are going on in society. And it's great to have him on the line. Hello, uh, it's John here. Um, I'm here with Ray Dog. Uh, today the topic is let me interview you. So I always like to talk to with different people of different perspectives. Um, so, Ray, where are you from? I'm from Massachusetts in the United States. Cool, 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 cool. So uh, do you have a family, Ray? You married? Currently I'm just single. Oh, okay. Any kids? Nope. I thought I did at one time, but I'm, I don't have any kids currently. Okay. So, Ray, uh, just uh, politically, would you say you're more Democrat or Republican or Libertarian, or what do you identify as politically? I would say that I'm more conservative, Libertarian, Republican. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, what else? Let's see. Uh, what do you believe in, Ray? Like, are you spiritual, religious, agnostic? or? I believe in God. I'm a Christian. Um, do you believe in life, other life in the universe? That's a that's a difficult question. I would, I I don't know honestly. I want the Christian in me says no. God only created us, but looking out there myself, I don't know. It could be all the people in the universe. I just don't know. Cool. Um, is there anything you want to ask me? I mean, I, I can turn the time over to you. You can ask me anything. Well, uh, I guess I could ask you the same questions you asked me, just to see if we're on different sides or so we could have a debate going. Yeah, so uh, my name is John Vidal. I'm here from in Texas. I, uh, I'm 22. I, uh, I was a missionary in Mexico City, so I, I'm Christian. I'm Mormon Christian. Mormons are Christians. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What else? I can I identify as a conservative, like Republican. Of course, I don't know, like I, I I believe that ideologies change, but I adhere to like what Republican you know was made for for anti-slavery. But I would say we're conservative Republican. Uh, when it comes to life outside of the universe, uh, or out of our world, I do believe in it. And um, I actually, it's actually a Mormon doctrine that there's other life out there, and those beings are children of God. Maybe in our image, in his image, or maybe not in his image, but there's other life out there, and that God creates and destroys, and he keeps creating worlds, and his glory never ends. But um, yeah, I was also uh, diagnosed as bipolar, but. Uh, I went to outside of the country for two, for two different doctors. One was Buddhist and one was uh, Christian. They both told me I had anxiety, and, and they put me on a on a nutrition plan and exercise plan. Um, and they and they said they said that uh, that I had empathetic abilities. So I I like to study the mind and and the body. I, my I studied psychology 
are specializing in human sexuality and like marriage and counseling. And I have teachers that are, uh, uh, my uh, one professor that really helped me guide me through the learning of that stuff. Um, but that's a little so bit about when, me. When you say you, you're about when you are, you to learn about sexuality, you, you, you mean like as far as, uh, Scientifically, psychologically, and how it is, and I had my, and then spiritually. So I had, a, so I talk, I could, it's whenever I talk to people about it, I talk about how, how it affects you psychologically, emotionally, physically, and then I add the spiritual right. part to it, according to what I believe in. So it. how do you so. feel about transgenders? Um, so this is a very controversial topic, but what I feel is, is more like science-based. I believe like if you're a guy and you sit and you have a sex scene, Scientifically and biologically speaking, you're still male. Male. All the chromosomes in your body are still XY. Even ironically, uh, your your sperm cells. So uh, this is it's not really like what I believe. It's what science, what biology, uh, and it's very sad to to see that society uh, starts to lean towards like feelings. Like when when we when we dictate feelings over science or facts, that's when society starts to crumble. But it's um, I believe transgender is a is a mental dis- disorder. Uh, it used to be called gender dysphoria. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't I agree with you more. In fact, yeah, I'm a musician, and I just released a music video mm-hmm. pertaining to this very topic. And I'm getting a lot of hate from transgenders, but I'm just being honest. I pretty much said the same thing you just said there. That you're, you're, you're you know, you you're born a yeah. man. You're you're gonna be a man. You, it's not biologically possible for you to be a woman. So. Mm-hmm. yeah and then uh unless it's like intersex which is a totally different thing but that's like less than one percent um but uh yeah when it comes to that people seem like no i feel and identify it's like now it's like you can feel however you want and i respect that but i'm not going to follow along with your delusion uh it's like uh so i've had family members that are schizophrenic and bipolar and they start saying like oh the radio is talking to me of course so what we do is we're not going to follow along like yeah no we tell them we take them to the doctors. We take, we help them get uh, find help, whether it be holistically or prescribed or however you know whatever they need. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 science, so it's biology. It's, people may be offended, but that's that's facts. And and, and as Ben Shapiro would say, facts don't care. Amen to that. I definitely, I'm one hundred percent with you. I just don't understand why society is going along with it. Why do you think society is just going along with it? I think today, uh, I don't know why, but like in the 1940s, 1950s, you know, men, men, uh, gender roles and everything, it was very like, you know, uh, people were very, I guess, brave. They fought in World War II. And, um, and now today, I think everyone just is, is in the culture of victimhood, of, of being offended, of being the victim, of being entitled. And I think it's really dumb. And it's just, um, I think that's why people go along with it. It's like, oh, we don't want to hurt your feelings and, you know, and it's it's very dumb. And I, like the left, for example, they use those type of tactics like that. That if you disagree with my opinion, that that's microaggression, and I have the right to retaliate with violence, which is really dumb. But I, I believe that's why it's the victim. Right. So yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Political correctness, and that's what it is. But I I don't go along with it. Yeah. I, that's I'm always outspoken. I'm gonna always speak my mind, and I I don't care if your feelings are hurt. I'm not gonna. Yeah you know, keep my feelings in because you're hurt because I say that you're, you're a man-made experiment. You know, it, it's just my opinion. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's like for me, it's like uh, I won't talk about it unless someone asks me like, "Hey, what do you believe in?" Then I'll tell them, and then you know. But I'm not, you know, for me, I uh, I I have my beliefs and my standards, and I hold them very dear. And just because the law changes and and things change, just because sin is legalized or whatever, doesn't mean it's still uh, that that it's that sin is okay. You know, God has your standards, and society may change your standards, but God. Yeah, has yeah I agree with you. I mean. I'm in a li- little different perspective because I'm a musician and I'm I'm gonna write about things that I feel. So I'm so my you know my feelings come comes through my songs and lyrics and so I'm always getting heat for how I feel, but I'm not gonna change who I am because because society wants. What type of what type of, what type of music is that? I Sorry. I do a little bit of of uh, reggae, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of of uh, rock. Cool man. I actually play guitar. I played uh, mariachi like four years throughout school, and then um, I also I like to I like rap and hip hop a lot. And it's for me, it's very easy to like just rhyme on the spot or just write rhymes or poetry or whatever. Yeah. Like, okay, John must have a bad um, connection. We'll see if we could get him back. <clears throat> cool. Hi, how's it going? I'm Ray Sean and. We're going to be talking about gun control. Do you want to lead? Uh, no, you can go ahead and lead. Well, my position has never actually changed on gun control. Gun control to me is unnecessary in the way that they want to do con- gun control against a person like myself. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I take, I take care of my guns. I store them properly. Instead of going after like gang members and people who have illegal guns they want they're trying to target thank you very much john that was a great interview something was going on with his phone there so we'll have to connect some other time so right now i'm going to turn the conversation over to actual transgenders of female to male and the male to female they both had interviews and I'm just going to play these interviews so you can have an idea of what they went through. And, uh, yeah, judge for yourself. So we're going to probably start off with, uh, how do you pronounce this? Jadu. And he was born a white male and had surgery to be a Philippine woman so i'm gonna play the interview that he had and then i'll get back to you and there you have it in the transgender's own words you can't change your gender or race i think that the transgender meant that you can't change your sex because there's not you're not, there's not really a gender. You're born male or female, yet that's your sex. But neither, I I agree, definitely agree with that, that you cannot change that, your race and your sex. You were born male, you were born female. I don't care how much hormones or how much ovaries you take out or what you do, that you, you'll never change your sex. You're a man, you're a man, you're a woman, you're a woman. So very courageous of this jadu person to 
go on national TV on Tucker, Tucker Carlson and talk about his situation. So that was uh, definitely something. And uh, I'm going to want to turn it over now to uh, to this. Uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't recall the name here, but it's a, a woman who feels like they're a man. And they're going to talk about the surgery that went wrong with them. And I can only imagine that it would be even more difficult or painful for a woman trying to be a man getting that surgery. And I'm sure this happened to many other women who wanted to do this. I can't imagine why you would put your yourself through this. This is really... But anyway, I'm going to let transgender woman or man rather because he was a woman transitioning into a man I'll let let him speak and tell you about his surgery I did a video about Jadu he was born as Adam Wheeler a white man who now identifies as a Filipino woman and he was being represented by Kathy Aru who was a guest on Tucker Carlson's show if you haven't seen that video I'll leave the link below so Tucker had Jadu himself on his show. Very interesting interview. We're going to look at some of the things that Jadu had to say. So he was telling Tucker about his mom saw some video made about him and his mom thought it was kind of like funny and really wasn't taking it seriously. And he admits that, yeah, it is kind of silly. Here's what he has to say. She's holding a phone with, uh, with a video that was made about me on YouTube and she was just, you know, she was just cackling saying this is the best this is the best thing ever and you know i i i i can reflect on myself in the third person and i can see why it's silly and it, and it is silly and then he also admits that identity issues are just that issues and you know identity issues are are issues you know it's it's a very small part of myself as well as my transsexuality uh but you know a lot, a lot of people like yourself you know find it find it interesting and I'll and I'll talk about it next he addresses how the progressives that claim to be so tolerant are not as tolerant as they want you to believe they must be deeply offended by you then exactly you know uh, you know I tell a lot of people that you know the the LGBT community and and you know there are some left communities as well that aren't as tolerant as they may as they may seem so no surprise there, but it's very interesting. He's kind of blowing up their spot. And a lot have accused him of trolling because they're like, what, why would he say these things? Maybe he's trolling. I really don't think so. I just think he's being truthful. He's being honest with himself and he's being honest with us. So the next thing he had to say was really interesting and he potentially could have just blown up the spot of what many believe is the actual agenda behind this. Very interesting stuff, take a look. I don't believe you can actually change your sex and you, I don't believe you can actually change your race. You know, you're, you're, you're born as you are. Uh, but really, that's, that's, why, that's why I refer to, you know, tra you know, transgenderism or however you like to call it as gender dysphoria. You know, like it, it is, it, it is a problem, and I, and even fully transitioned people, I would say, must be unhappy because if you have to strive so, so differently from where you, where you began, are you really happy? Say what? Did you catch that? Do you think he's trolling, or just being honest? 
And the reality is the transgender community has a high percentage of suicides. I think it's something like 70%. I think it's because what they're dealing with is very difficult. I can't imagine what it would feel like being born a man if I felt like a woman and I spent the rest of my life either trying to, to live as something I don't feel like or to fight against my, my biology and try to be something else by means of surgery and synthetic hormones. It's gotta be really difficult and I feel for them. But here's the issue. I really respect Jadu for his candor and his honesty. And he's really kind of exposing how there is a bigger agenda behind this. When Kathy Aru was speaking on behalf of him, I don't think she was properly representing how he really thinks, how he really feels. And I believe the agenda behind this is exploiting these people. They're using these people for their own evil agenda. Now they would have you believe that they're the loving ones. They're the accepting ones. I see it as enabling, enabling delusional behavior. I do not think this enabling is showing them love. I think it's actually showing them the opposite. If someone came to you who was anorexic and you're looking at them and they're a woman who's 5'9", 85 pounds soaking wet, what are you gonna tell them? Are you gonna say, well, you just need to exercise more. You need to diet even harder so that you can achieve the, the body that you look in the mirror and you're satisfied with. Would you do that? Absolutely not. That would be negligent. That would be unloving. That would be feeding into a delusion. How is the rest of this any different? There are many different disorders. There's something called body integrity identity disorder where people are amputating perfectly good limbs. Would you encourage someone to do that? Would you enable someone to do that? Would you encourage someone who feels like they're a different species, like an animal, to have plastic surgery? to become that animal, where do we draw the line? And are we gonna be consistent across the line or are we gonna pick and choose what is okay and what isn't? Who determines the boundaries? Who determines what is delusional and what's a disorder and what isn't? So we need to show people that are struggling with all these different issues, love. They're not the enemy, they're not the problem. The problem is those behind the agenda that try to force the rest of us to accept this. And if we don't accept it, that we're unloving and that we're a bigot, which is not the case, which is a lie. Again, I respect Jadu for his honest and his candor. And I would say to him, listen, Jesus loves you. God the Father desires a relationship with you through the Son. And if you repent of your sins and believe on the name of Jesus, you could be saved and you could be healed. And I would say the same thing to a liar. If you repent of your sins and believe on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. I'd say the same thing to adulterers. I'd say the same thing to those who are struggling with greed or lust or whatever your sin is. We need to stand up for truth. We need to stand up for love, true love, and speak the truth in love. Don't let society brainwash you. So Jadu, we love you and we pray that you believe on the name of Jesus because eternal life is in him. Alright guys, I hope you liked this video. Uh, I got my uterus and ovaries removed uh, through surgery. Um, everything went well. Uh, the surgeon had everything removed in uh, one and a half hours, so that's good. Um, when I woke up from surgery, I was in a lot of pain, so I got a lot of morphine and other painkillers to bring my pain level down. Um, 
and when my pain level was uh, was lower than it was when I woke up um, they brought me back to my room and when I came there um, my friends were there my family was there uh, so I got to chat with them for a little while I was still very stoned but um, but it was nice to chat with them and um, yeah it was it, it was good for uh, my distraction from the pain. Normally, after this surgery, you can go home the next day, um, but I couldn't pee, so I had to stay another night. So I stayed over, uh, there wasn't a problem. Um, I could go home on Sunday, but when they checked me, they saw this. And I'm just going to show a picture because I don't know how to describe um, what they saw. But the picture says everything, so um, here's the picture. As you can see, it was very swollen um, at my belly button, and that's not that's that's not good. So they checked it, and they said that I had to go to the hospital where my surgeon was working at that moment, so that she can look at it so my parents brought me to the other hospital and um, they checked me and they said like it's a little internal bleeding um, but it stopped itself so um, we just want you to stay here for one more night uh, to just check on you and see if it really stopped itself or uh, that you still are in danger so i stayed there nothing special happened so they let me go home when i got home um my pain level was, was very low, uh, I just had a little pain, um, but it was bearable. Uh, and on Sunday, yes, Sunday, Monday, I went home from the hospital. And um, on Sunday, I decided to go to a friend because I was feeling good. Um, and I decided to stay over for the night. And this is where, where, it, <laughs> where it all went wrong. So yeah, we were just like sitting uh, at the dining table, we were just chatting, uh, talking about stuff. I, rem I remembered that I had an appointment uh, at 9 o'clock, uh, 9 a.m. Uh, in the morning uh, with my surgeon to talk about how I feel, uh, how everything's going. Uh, so I made the joke. I spontane spontaneously get an internal bleeding from the time because it was like 9 a.m. in the morning and we were sitting at the dining table in the middle of the night so we had to set us set our alarms for it and um, like one minute later I got a nose bleeding and I was like okay I why did I make this joke and um, after my nose bleeding stopped, um, I had to go to the toilet, I had to pee. So I went to the toilet and uh, I was just sitting there peeing. Um, <laughs> I was just peeing. At one moment I felt something big came out of my, yeah, down there. And I looked down in the toilet and everything, like everything, was red there was blood everywhere and I saw this huge huge blood um, I don't know how to say it in in English let me google this <laughs> okay so 
I googled it and it says blood clot. I don't know if this is if this is right, but um, it was just like it was at the size of a of this, and it came out uh, down under. I was like, what? I was like panicking. We didn't know what to do, so he decided to get, just give me uh, sanitary uh, pads because we knew we could bleed after the surgery. So yeah, I just decided to stay calm, go to bed and just see what's, what happens uh, in what happened in the morning or what happens overnight. I went after my first time to the toilet, I went uh, for a second time and again there were like huge blood uh, like size of this I think. So that was the second time uh, that happened. We went to bed after everything happened and um, I tried to sleep but I couldn't because I felt blood coming out the whole time. Next morning I decided to go to the toilet uh, to see how many blood loss I had and my sanitary pad was full of blood and it was in my underwear and that's the moment that I realized that this wasn't good and uh, that I had to call the hospital. I called the hospital and they just didn't help me. Um, they basically said that's fucked up but uh, we can help you. Luckily they called me back and um, they said that they were very angry at the lady who picked up the phone and just told me that it's fucked up but that she can help me and that I had to come to the hospital like right now and that they would check me and she said that I had to uh, come to the ECU. So I called my dad, he picked me up at my friend's house and we went to the hospital straight away. This is uh, a picture of me uh, in the ECU. So when me and my dad arrived at the ECU, they just checked some blood, um, but they said it was normal, so they didn't know what was causing the bleeding, um, and if it was an internal bleeding. After all the blood tests at the ECU, uh, they decided to make an echography. I can tell you it was very unpleasant, it was very painful, but I had to do it because I just wanted to know what was happening with me. I was at the ECU around 1 p.m. and uh, they checked my blood again at 4 p.m. and the surgeon came around past 4 and um, I saw her coming in and I was like okay this this isn't good this isn't good and she told me that there was a lot of blood in my stomach and that she saw something in my stomach that wasn't supposed to be there like some blood clot or something like it was in the left side of my stomach I had to have surgery again that moment I wanted to cry but I thought I can cry but I have to stay positive I just need to go through this and everything will be okay so I asked my dad to take a picture of me with my thumbs up this is a picture of me right before surgery like um, 15 minutes before surgery, uh, trying to stay positive. So when I woke up and I came back to my room, um, they told me that they couldn't find a cause for the bleeding. So I was like, alright, um, okay. 
but it wasn't anything dangerous so that's good um, I was happy about that so the next day Tuesday um, Monday I got the emergency surgery uh, for my internal bleeding and Tuesday um, I got to go home um, I was feeling very 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 sick I was throwing up um, I didn't know where to go with myself um, but I wanted to go home when I came home I just went straight to bed I just slept for like 12 hours I don't know maybe more I was waking up still feeling sick and um, it was continuing through the week I was feeling sick the whole week on Friday I woke up again and I had a lot of pain in my belly I was losing blood again I was scared I called the hospital again and um, they told me to come over and they wanted to check on me um, so I came there uh, I had to have an echography again they wanted me to stay there at that moment I was mentally exhausted but I was like okay I have to go through this I have to do this I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker I was throwing up I couldn't eat I lost over five kilograms on weight at that point I was feeling myself getting a little depressed because it was a lot of a lot for me to cope with and I couldn't handle it and um, I had to stay in the hospital for five nights after the five, fifth night I just begged the doctors to let me go home because I just I just couldn't take it anymore luckily they let me go home and I'm home now and I'm doing a lot better and um, yeah, this is my experience um, with the surgery. Uh, I just don't, I, as I said at, in the beginning of this video, I don't want to scare anyone. I don't want to stop anyone from getting this surgery. I just want to share my story. This video was very hard for me to make um, because it takes me back to all the hard moments um, that happened in the past uh, three weeks. But I wanted to make this video and I wanted to tell you guys what happened and um, as I said in the beginning of the video um, I don't want you to stop this uh, to stop my uh, to let my video stop you from having this surgery um, I don't want to scare you I just wanted to share my story my experience if you thought this video uh, was helpful uh, give me a thumbs up if you have any further questions about my surgery, about my life, about me, about I don't know, just message me on social media. Um, I will put the links in the description. And thank you for watching and I'll see you in my... And there you have it. I can't pronounce the name. Fran Coys. That's his uh, tragic story, which is probably more likely to happen to even more transgenders than you think it's not something that's normal and doctors are playing god i've said this before i'm not being insensitive to a transgender but it's just the it's just the fact you know your your, your body wasn't meant to go through this type of change it's just not I don't care what you feel on the inside. That's the problem with the world these days. 
Everything is going by how you feel, your emotions, rather than what's fact. And so we end up with a dysfunctional society, with dysfunctional people. And God not being in the society like like he used to be back in when I was growing up, that's when you have all these issues and problems. When God was prominent and and the, the strong voice in the society, these things didn't happen. So the end days are definitely there. So I want to finally uh, finish up this segment with... Um, Let's see, where is it? Just give me a second here. Um, hmm. Okay. I don't have it set yet, so let me continue talking as I get this all set up for us here. Um, yeah, it's your your body. You're putting your body through way too much uh, stress by doing these uh, surgeries. It's just not right. So I'm gonna take a break, and then when we come back, I'll have the um, the interview or rather um, presentation, and. It's entitled The Terrible Fraud of Transgender Medicine. Welcome back to Political Bomb Show. So, the next uh, interview, or uh, rather presentation, it's going to be about 41 minutes long, but it's filled with a lot of information that I feel that if you're uh, in limbo, thinking that you want to have surgery because you feel like a man or you feel like a woman. I feel that this that you need to listen to this in its entirety and make an informed decision after you listen to this. So without further ado, let's get this going. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist who practices in private practice in Atlanta. I'm on the clinical faculty of two medical school uh, pediatric departments in Atlanta. Uh, love teaching, love clinical practice. I've been an endocrinologist for 48 years. Excuse me, 38 years. I've been practicing pediatrics for 42 years. Had a 20-year career in the Navy before I retired from the Navy as a pediatrician and pediatric endocrinologist and moved to Atlanta uh, under sort of unusual circumstances that turned out to be fantastic for me and for my family as we raised our kids to adulthood in, the, uh, in that lovely part of the South. So my experience in transgender medicine goes all the way back to my fellowship days at Johns Hopkins where I trained. Uh, and I'll start discussing the issue looking backwards at the history of transgender medicine as it has unfolded in the United States. I refer to the Three Musketeers, Alfred Kinsey, um, he was not a physician. He, was a, he had a degree of science in entomology, which is the study of insects. Uh, he started uh, because of his interest in sex uh, at the Kinsey Institute in 1947. John Money, who uh, was a psych psychologist, trained, uh, graduated from Harvard, and joined the faculty at Johns Hopkins uh, as a clinical psychologist in 1951. Um, I read a little bit of his biographical statement about his relationship with Johns Hopkins as, as a young person, 
And he was not a physician, did not go to medical school, but he did say he spent Saturdays in the pediatric endocrine clinic for a year, and as far as he was concerned, he was better trained than most pediatric endocrinologists. So he visioned himself as a medical physician and an expert in the, in the field, even though he had no formal training. And then Harry Benjamin, who uh, I originally had assumed was a psychologist or a psychiatrist, turns out he was a general medicine physician who also had a whole lot of interest in things related to sex, and he had a private practice that failed a number of times that finally took hold in New York City, and he would go to San Francisco in the summer and practice there. So this is the picture. If you look closely, there's a person on your far right. Uh, that was me as a fellow. I had hair and it was dark back in those days. And in the center, you can see another person who is a circled head, and that is the infamous Dr. John Money. Looks like he has a horn coming up out of, behind his head there, which is sort of appropriate. Um, he introduced the term gender as a psychological construct. Previous to the 1950s and 60s, the concept of gender was actually developed for languages. So you had masculine uh, ver and nouns and you had feminine nouns. So it was le chat and uh, das Hund in, for dog and cat in Ger French and German. And then feminine, la chaise and die Kirche, which was for the chair and the church in French and uh, German respectively. So John Money decided, he decided lots of things. He had lots of ideas in his head, and he thought that gender was going to be used as a term uh, to show the internal sexed self as either male or female. So it was taken out of the linguistic world in the 1950s and 60s and placed as a term in the field of identifying uh, human beings and their gender uh, orientation. So he started what he called the psychohormonal group at Johns Hopkins. Um, he had uh, trained in Boston and was intrigued by the opportunity to study patients that had issues with sexual differenti differentiation, uh, so-called hermaphrodites or pseudo-hermaphrodites. And at Johns Hopkins, at that time, it was sort of the place where steroid biochemistry was being unfolded and the concept of how cortisol is made and how the offshoots of the steroid hormones are developed by, in the adrenal gland and what mistakes in nature happened to cause what we now call disorders of sexual differentiation. So most of the patients in the United States and actually from around the world were referred to Baltimore to be evaluated for what caused their disorder of sexual differentiation. And this is a very tiny fraction of patients. We're not talking about hundreds and thousands. We're talking about initially 10 or 12 patients that were studied just to look at why the, nature, uh, the accident of nature happened and, and what the consequences were on physical exam. So John Money thought, well, there is an opportunity for me as an interested psychologist to look at <clears throat> the concept of where uh, one perceives their gender and if social circumstances can change a person's gender successfully. So that he decided he was drawn to Johns Hopkins as a result. So he joined the faculty and established protocols to evaluate these kids, both pre-treatment and post-treatment, uh, and to see what happened in patients with abnormal anatomy or uh, early or delayed puberty. So he developed, in, at the same time, an adult transsexual program, and it was not called transgender then, it was called transsexual. Uh, these were adult patients who believed they were born into the wrong body, and, and were, they were recruited uh, in, through newspapers locally, uh, and regionally uh, through the grapevine. There was no internet back then. 
And they, they had cross-dressed these individuals in their intended new gender for two years. They needed, that was the social transition phase first. And then they administered cross-sex hormones subsequently if they had been able to succeed in their new, new, new gender role uh, in the workplace and at home socially. They did not have puberty blockers because these were all adults who had already been through puberty. Uh, the surgical procedures then to alter their genitalia were developed and they actually, in the process of learning on big people, the surgeons translated that down to surgeries that could be done on infants and toddlers who had abnormal genitalia that needed correction. So there was a spin-off uh, from the adult program that worked its way down through pediatric surgeons and subspecialists. So this is one of the uh, patients that, was that changed from male to female. Uh, we as a pediatric endocrine fellows, unfortunately, were the ones that had to follow these patients into their adulthood even though they weren't pediatric patients. So Don Trella, as you might have guessed, had a day job. and It wasn't a particularly socially acceptable one. Money scientific protocols. He had an idea, and he says, I have, he would actually call up and say, I've been thinking, I have a really neat idea. And then he would say, let's do uh, something to the patient and see how it comes out. Now this sounds bizarre in an, era, in, in an era where we are so intent on following good science, but that's as far as his science went. So uh, John Money uh, decided he was one of the leaders in medical castration of sex criminals. Uh, he, uh, the only drug that we had at the time that would work was uh, medroxyprogesterone long-acting or so-called uh, Depomedrol, or rather Depo-Provera. And that was given to uh, in incarcerated individuals in, in prisons that uh, had been sex offenders to see whether or not they could control their sexual urges. Uh, he, had direct, he had directed interviews with our pediatric patients who had disorders of sexual differentiation or who had precocious puberty for either uh, in reasons that couldn't be discovered or who had tumors that produced these kinds of hormones. During these interviews, the boys were taught how to masturbate. Uh, we actually had to read through these reports and the interviews were very interesting because the first time a six-year-old boy with precocious puberty came in, they would, the, the interviewers would say, how often do you masturbate? And the little six-year-old would sort of scratch his head and, and say, what's that? And so they would show him on, with a pencil, this is how you masturbate. Next interview, you came in, the, the boy was masturbating six times a day. So it was a, kind of a lead-on interview. It was actually rather perverted, but this is the kind of stuff that John Money's program produced at Johns Hopkins, a very venerable institution. Then there was the tragic case of the newborn boy twin who had an amputated penis during the process of trying to do a circumcision. The uh, unwitting surgeon took a bovie knife, which is an electrocautery device, to touch an area that was bleeding and essentially burnt the child's penis off to the base. And so that boy in the newborn nursery had a, a brother, twin brother, uh, and that boy was raised at the advice of John Money uh, as a girl. Surgically, the gonads were removed, uh, the stump of the, uh, what was left of the phallus was sort of fashioned into a clitoris. Uh, there was a vaginal opening created using the te surgical techniques. And this child went home uh, from the hospital as a girl. Then there's a case that I took care of a child named David who came down from uh, Buffalo, New York to our clinic because he had what was called a micropenis. A very, very tiny phall phallic structure and no palpable testicles in the scrotum. 
uh, we, just, we evaluated this child at age six weeks, and we decided we would put this child through a protocol, which in, it was to use a hormone that would stimulate the testicles to produce testosterone. In doing so, we would A, find out if the baby did have testicles, and after that, we'd find out if the, the testicles produced testosterone, would the baby's penis grow and would the tissue respond? All those things were very important for us to know in terms of figuring out what this child should be raised, either a boy or a girl. So unbeknownst to us, John Money was, he, we thought he was out of the country, but he actually had come back early from a tour somewhere, and he interviewed this family without our knowing it before the family left home and told the mother and the grandmother that what we were doing with hormones was absolute nonsense. There was no possible way that the child was going to be able to be raised as a boy because nothing we could do would fix that. So he sent the baby home with the mother and the grandmother telling them to change the name and they chose Tabitha, and to cross-dress the baby as a girl. Six weeks later, the baby came back for us to evaluate the baby, and the, the baby, Tabitha, had a normal-sized penis and, and testicles down in the scrotum, indicating clearly that it was just a boy with a pituitary deficiency and, and not somebody that needed to have their sex changed. It was that particular case that sort of ended the relationship of John Money with the Pediatric Endocrine Division at Johns Hopkins, and later he they closed his program down. So the suicide, that boy with the ablated penis who was raised as a female, what this showed was this is a boy who was in utero, had all the XY chromosome information that said every cell of his body is male. He had the hormones that bathed his brain because there was no, no, no problem of hormone deficiency. The testosterone programmed his system from the beginning. He was changed into a girl surgically as a costume. And he knew uh, throughout his young childhood that something was not right. And when his parents finally fessed up and, and told him what the story was, he insisted that he be changed as a young teenager back to a boy. And he assumed that role. And then he committed suicide. That made headlines across the country. And that was sort of the last nail in the coffin for John Money and his crazy ideas. So um, the interesting thing about the, the disorders of sexual differentiation, and I, as a fellow, had learned that if you had a baby that looked uh, completely uh, feminized or non-virilized, uh, there was no possible way that that child could be reared as uh, a male and would have to be reared as a female. The study of long-term follow-up of these patients, there were 16 of them, two of them ended up uh, remaining uh, as they were natally, uh, as males, the parents did not want any surgery or any correction. Of the 14 that did, eight ended up uh, growing back up and reclaiming their natal sex as, as a male. So even with our well-intentioned uh, ideas based on the concept that gender is, is your, your natal sex is not innate, that there's gender that can be changed by society, uh, it turned out that was not the case. So the, the poor outcome in adults, uh, the adults that went through the transsexual program at Johns Hopkins uh, ended up uh, as, a, as a group of about 50 patients. They were studied in adulthood, and they seemed a bit content with their new selves, except that their female, their female uh, appearances were pretty much character, caricatures of females. They were almost like Disney uh, characters instead of actual women. They wore an incredible amount of makeup, uh, they had no in incentive to think about um, any, any parenting skills, uh, and they ended up keeping all of their neuroses they had beforehand. They were not improved at all. And so on that basis, um, 
Paul McHugh, who joined the faculty at Johns Hopkins a long time before, and who became the, the psychiatrist-in-chief in 1974, closed down all of the efforts at Hopkins that had been started by John Bunny. So if we look at transgender clinical services over the decades before uh, 2006, in the Netherlands, um, they had adults uh, that persisted with gender identity, and they were treated with uh, medicine uh, to transform them, uh, their physical appearance to the opposite sex, and they were also treated surgically. In Toronto, Dr. Kenneth Zucker, who was a psychologist, had a large series of patients uh, who he counseled through their gender identity crisis and got them to be essentially returned to their natal sex in 98% of the cases in boys and upwards of 80 plus percent in females. It is that classic work, that long, hard, 35 to 40 year experience of his patients in Toronto that gave, gives us the strong statistics about the existence of the gen transgender identity. Then he had experience with greater than 500 patients, 560 patients to be exact. Then in Boston, uh, Dr. Norman Spack uh, who had taken a trip over to the Netherlands. He was sort of fascinated with the transgender idea. And he went to the big clinics in the Netherlands where the, this had been a, in practice for a number of years. And he thought this would be a great idea to start in the United States. And so he came back to Boston and started what was the first East Coast uh, Transgender Center in 2006. So in 2006, there were basically two places in the country where if you had transgender uh, issues as a patient, you could be referred to the experts since, since Baltimore was gone. And that was in Boston and then eventually in Los Angeles. Now, there's a group called the Harry Benjamin Society, named after that infamous character who was one of the three musketeers sexologists. Um, its membership requirements are very, very strict. You have to be interested in transgenderism. That's it. You do not have to be trained in medicine. You do not have to be, all you have to do is say, I'm really a, a proponent of transgenderism. And you sign up and you get in as a membership. That's, the, that's a professional society, supposedly, and there is no requirements for, for specific education or professional background. So the Harry Benjamin Society sort of disappears, and in its place is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, or WPATH, as it's known. WPATH is not happy with the existing medical literature. The studies we had from Kenneth Zucker with his greater than 500 patients showed that the desistance of transgenderism was prevalent if you let these kids go through puberty naturally. That's a large number of patients, 560 to be studied over all those years. And then the study from Sweden, which is a country which has been very permissive and very accepting socially of transgender patients into adulthood, published a study uh, of 330 plus patients, or 324 patients, uh, of transgendered adults in, who uh, persisted into adulthood and had been treated either with medication or medication and surgery. And their data showed that there was a 20-fold increase in suicide in those patients compared to the non-transgender community. That blows it out of the water. This is not something you can sweep under the, the rug as a, a poor study, poorly conceived. It was every single patient, like it or not, was included in the study. And again, the same thing with Dr. Zucker's study. He did not exclude a single one of his patients from the database. 
So the W path, in order to get around these, this kind of powerful research and, and experience, creates its own bibliography. Uh, their, the quality of the studies that they research are poor for a number of reasons. They're very, very small numbers, studies of as little as five patients. Um, the recruitment is based on people saying, we're going to publish a, a study about how you're doing as a transgender. Please contact us if you're interested. Okay, now, in a society where if you're not happy with your transgender self, you are going to be ostracized and receive death threats, you're not probably going to raise your hand and come to that study and be recruited. You're going to sit, sit quietly and say absolutely nothing about how miserable you are. So it's a biased population. I want all happy people to raise their hands. Okay, all happy people raise your hands. <gasps> are you happy? Gosh, 100% correlation. Okay, so it's just, it's like the, the silliest thing in the world to call that good science. We don't do that with other areas. There are no control groups in, in their studies. Very, very few of them, if any, have anything that could be considered a study where they had a treated arm and an untreated arm in the study and compared the outcomes. So, and there are many anecdotal case reports. If you look through the WPATH bibliography, it's woman, you know, transfers to male, has happy life. Okay, and it's basically the woman writing uh, her, her happy self or the guy writing his happy self saying how wonderful things came out. So their bibliography is full of these kind of anecdotal things. They also use recycling of the same information. Somebody will write an article in a, in a journal that is perhaps based on some kind of competent research uh, or incompetent research, and then that will be quoted, and then that will be rewritten into an article in what we call a throwaway journal, which is a journal that basically does, you know, articles, sort of summary articles for people who are interested in the field but are not in specializing in that field, and they want to know a little bit about it. And in pediatrics, pediatric news is one of those, or pediatric annals, or contemporary pediatrics. These are not journals that have peer review. With the, with the kind of re restrictions for the scientific journals. They're basically sort of a, like a throwaway rag at the, at the grocery store where you've got a, a summary real quickly where you can go through bullet points and maybe learn something and file it away if you're interested in that. So they'll recycle it through those and the, the, all of a sudden there'll be five different articles and five different throwaways all about the same subject, all written by the same person, and they count those as five independent references. So this is how the WPATH, the bibliography, comes about. Um, citations are, are, that are marginally related are used. Uh, they'll, in, the, in the list, if you pay attention, they'll say something about chick oviduct bioassay in the castrated rat. And you think, well, what did that have to do with anything? Well, it looks scientific. It's got a Journal of Hormone Research. That's a really respectable journal. That, that, gosh, look at, that, look at that reference. That's a really powerful one. When it has very little to do with anything in the, in the uh, actual subject matter. So you can make yourself a 270-item bibliography that looks really powerful. And if you look at a lot of what's done, it's a cut and paste. You can tell that the same articles are referenced when they do write their articles. And, and so it's a very poor science. Uh, they also have created, the WPATH has created its own Journal of Transgender Health. Now this is supposed to be a peer-reviewed journal, okay? If you imagine that everyone who reviews it is a member of WPATH or believes in that, 
can you imagine the quality of the articles that you're going to find? Well, anything in terms of contradiction to, to a transgender affirming concept be approved or, or published? Absolutely not. So it's, but they have a, a, a medical society, so-called, and their own journal, and that gives them credibility. These things make a huge difference in the medical community. For my colleagues who are not in the, my subspecialty, they are totally dependent on this kind of appearance, thinking, wow, there's an international group that has its own peer-reviewed journal, and they say transgender issues are, are, need to be affirmed, and we need to do hormone treatment, and we need to do surgical treatment, and the sooner the better. This gives steam to the engine. If you wonder why we've gone from zero to 60, it's because this kind of stuff is sweeping over the medical community, and the vast majority of my pediatric colleagues think it's absolutely total valid science. They have no idea what's behind the curtain. The other interesting thing is that the, their bibliography at WPATH now completely is devoid of any reference to Dr. Kenneth Zucker, who was the pioneer in gender identity disorder. His name has been expunged as if he's never existed. So they're on the rampage. They have standards of care that they developed for transgender health. Uh, they lobby the American Psychological Association to change gender identity disorder into gender dysphoria. The reason that they even kept it in as some kind of disorder was because they realized the poor transgender patients were not going to be able to get any health care paid for if they didn't have a pathologic diagnosis. So they changed the diagnosis from a disorder, a delusional state, to the pain and agony and suffering caused by society for these poor, otherwise normal transgender variant patients. So it legitimizes transgender as a normal variant. It blames society for all of the agony that, that these patients, and it facilitates insurance coverage for these patients with, on the, for the treatment of their dysphoria. And as I said, they removed all references to Dr. Zucker in their, in their and they convinced the Canadian government to actually shut down Dr. Zucker's clinic after all of his 35 plus years and almost 600 patients that he treated successfully. They pulled the plug and let him go. He no longer has a clinic to, to go to in Canada, in Toronto, where he was. That's the power of this organization. Meanwhile, back here in the United States, Dr. Spack uh, co coalesced a group of, of individuals from around the world, including the clinics in the Netherlands and in Sweden and in the United States. And they put together a set of guidelines. The committee excludes anybody with a contrary opinion. So Dr. Zucker, who is the pioneer essentially in, in this country and this, this continent uh, with transgender medicine was not included to, be, to discuss or create the guidelines that the Endocrine Society in the United States, professional organization, was going to adopt. He was left out. Dr. Paul McHugh, who had written extensively from Johns Hopkins, and who previously had been what was called a preeminent, world-renowned clinician, he was left out as well. So in 2009, they put together the guidelines. They did send out a little notice saying, if you're interested in reviewing them, have any comments, please, you know, please let us know. And at that particular time, I wasn't paying attention. I was a member of the Endocrine Society, but I didn't bother to turn in any comments. I just kind of went by the by. The by. And lo and behold, this comes out in the Endocrine Throwaway Journal. It is the Transsexual Treatment Guidelines and they outlined those in this particular uh, journal, but it was published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. So the guidelines in a nutshell are uh, do a psychological assessment. It doesn't tell you how deep. 
Just say, hey, you know, are you troubled? Check mark, okay, that's all we do. Um, we want to affirm and trans, uh, transition any child who states they are born into the wrong body. Uh, we want to block puberty as it begins. At age 16, we want to consider putting them on cross-sex hormones. Uh, at age 18, if the patient desires, they can uh, sign on with informed consent for corrective surgery, so-called corrective surgery. Of the 22 guidelines, only three meet any degree of scientific validity, according to a standard scale used to create these guidelines. It's used sort of internationally. Of those three, those were all about concerns about the puberty-blocking hormones and the cross-sex hormones and what would happen to these patients medically that could be adverse, okay? The remainder of them were based on very little science or absolutely no science whatsoever, and yet the guidelines were published. So the revised guidelines have just been put out by the Endocrine Society. They, didn't felt, they felt they needed to be updated because of the sudden push in transgender um, health issues. They added additional concerns uh, about the fact that these patients might have issues with fertility that they should be told about. Now, you're talking to a 12-year-old child about their infertility, lifelong infertility and cancer risk from cross-sex hormones. And you expect that child to grasp that and understand that and assent to going on the hormones or have the parents take the responsibility for that. Are you kidding? Are you absolutely kidding? There is no other area in medicine except for chemotherapies for you know, death-causing cancers where that would even be considered as an option. And we're not talking about death-causing cancers here. They suggested earlier cross-sex hormone therapy than waiting till 16, suggested earlier top surgery, that is to say mastectomies in girls, should be done before age of consent. And once again, they lacked reasonable scientific evidence and all but, all but four recommendations. They removed all references in these guidelines to Zucker, whereas before they'd had them in there. These are the articles you heard about, the New Atlantis article that Paul McHugh and uh, his colleague um, Dr. Mayer put together. This was a beautifully written, extensively referenced uh, article that had to be published in the New Atlantis magazine, primarily because no other reputable journal would, would print it because it wasn't politically correct. On the right side, you see the article written by Dr. Kenneth Zucker before his clinic was shuttered, showing the absolutely essential guidelines for treatment of transgendered persons. Not to be left out in terms of guidelines is the Pediatric Endocrine Society, which is a separate organization, decided they wanted to uh, go through and create their own guidelines. For the 2017 guidelines and for these guidelines, I made sure I gave them input. Not a shred of what I said was ever answered or respected in terms of what, how the guidelines came out. Not that I'm an important person, but they did ask for input, I gave it, and it was as if I, was never, I, I never existed. The guidelines are emphatically restating the Endocrine Society guidelines and suggest that uh, all the treatments should be covered by insurance and that that was the most important thing. Now you hear over and over again, the American College of Pediatricians is a tiny, racist, bigoted, homophobic group from the South. They're all religious zealots, okay? And they are on the hate list of the Southern Poverty Law Center, proud to say, okay? And that makes us feel really good because there's a lot of good company on that list of very decent human beings. Uh, but 
the American Academy of Pediatrics, whose membership is now upwards of 65,000 members of pediatricians and pediatric healthcare providers otherwise, uh, endorses uh, affirmation of transgender and treatment as guidelines of endocrine society say. How in the world can 66,000 pediatricians fall behind something that is so absolutely out of control. Why did the American Psychological Association take out gender identity and make it gender dysphoria? Don't these thousands and thousands and thousands of professional individuals understand that there should be a, some kind of balance and there should be a little give and take and perhaps a, you know, a two opinions stated or at least admit that there's another opinion that should be considered? How it happens is that the general membership has a, is allowed to have special interest groups. And the special interest groups are a tiny fraction of the membership, and they have a bee in their bonnet. They, want, they have a cause that they want to go for. Then that special interest group interacts with the executive committee that, that governs all of the decisions of policies made for the huge membership. In the American Academy of Pediatrics, that executive committee is 15 people. Membership, 66,000. So those 15 people listen to the special interest group, and all of a sudden, it's adopted by the entire society as if 66,000 people agree. And that's published. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychological Association, the American Association of Family Practitioners, the Endocrine Society all agree. And they're professional societies. And by God, the medical world totally supports this. And you fanatic, crazy, southern religious bigots are a small splinter group, and we shouldn't listen to you. We get that argument all the time. So, as this is like a domino, the APA, American Psychological Association, publishes something, the American Academy of Pediatrics jumps on board, and then the Endocrine Society jumps on board, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, the medical professionals are all in favor of Obamacare. The medical professions are all associated, in, in favor of transgender transitioning. And, and in truth, the physicians who work their bones to death every single day and take care of patients where the rubber hits the road have no idea what's going on at, at the level down where the rubber hits the road. So it was alluded to by uh, David Pickup this morning that why in the world is this transgender thing being pushed by the LGB community? When do they add T and why did they do that? Well. As he pointed out, if you get transgenderism as born that way and a civil rights uh, in terms of being transgender are protected, then male and female go away and the whole issue of acceptance of same-sex attraction all of a sudden is, is moot. It makes no difference if there is no sex one way or the other. So what does the T stand for? It's interesting, historically, originally it was transsexual, then it became transgender. Maybe you can throw transvestite in there as well, as if that is, and it's been blended together by LGBT. They are almost as if everybody that's in the trans community is all the same, which of course is absolutely hogwash and nonsense. Transgender, uh, transvestite can be heterosexual males who just absolutely love getting dressed up and putting on nail polish and high heel boots and kinky boots, okay? Or they can be like drag queens, which make a, there's a profession that are not necessarily, they can be homosexual, but many times they are not. The, the famous one being RuPaul, who says, you can call me anything you want to, I know who I am, okay? And he refers to himself as he all the time. He's, but he is brought into the trans group as if he is actually transgender, when the case is absolutely untrue. The advantage of inclusions in this alphabet soup of LGBT are anchoring transgender uh, civil rights, attempting to legitimize born that way. Uh, 
and the wider audience on the internet, which is a huge recruitment tool. The U.S. landscape in 1970, Transsexual Clinic at Hopkins was established, and in 1984 it was closed. In 2006, Norm Spack opened up his Boston Clinic. 2009, Endocrine Society guidelines were published, and since then, we're upwards of 50 transgender clinics nationwide. So originally, it's like mushrooms sprouting. The map that had just Boston on it, you see all these mushrooms growing here. There are clinics all over the place, all with experts at the helm, so-called, uh, none of whom have ever been really trained in transgender medicine. The battle to return to science is important. Only gender-affirming experts are invited to speak at academic meetings so that the alternative opinion cannot be heard. I attempted to do a balanced presentation in uh, a meeting in Houston uh, that was supposed to, that was held, excuse me, Austin that was held last year for the endocrine, you know, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, AACE, and we wanted to have a balanced presentation. What was presented was just the transgender affirming side, and no one else was invited. The publication after that meeting was describing how forward-thinking the organization was because they had embraced this new, new trend that was new science and needed to be paid attention to. No mention of, of counter uh, ideas. Um, the counseling to return to natal sex identity is outlawed in some states. You cannot do that. Your, your license will be taken away and you could be jailed. LGBT activists seek to destroy the opposition through academic influence. Dr. Mark Regeneris, who wrote the paper on uh, issues with uh, kids uh, raised in same-sex families, was removed from his faculty position temporarily. Uh, the university and uh, having to reinstate him. But his journal article was pulled temporarily, and then it, when it was reviewed and found to be valid, it was, it was reinstated as an article that did not need to be uh, rescinded. Um, there are many people in academic medicine who keep their mouths shut because their jobs depend on not opening their mouth. If they feel strongly about transgender issues and do not want to affirm patients with therapy, they just lay quiet for fear that they're, if they're not tenured, they're gonna be fired. So the major medical journals refuse to publish anything. The ones that are, we all, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of American Medical Association, the journal Pediatrics, uh, JCEM and the endocrine world will not publish anything that is, trend, that is counter to the, the uh, gender affirming uh, concept. So that's why Dr. McHugh had to publish in the Atlantis Journal is because it was a beautifully written article that was polished and would have done beautifully in terms of review. It just wasn't politically correct. So that they forced them to the margin. And then they're doing research providing benefits through affirmation uh, through, uh, through uh, using a different kind of standard for clinical research. There are ethical guidelines for clinical research that, that you, have to, you have to agree to before you do a clinical study. First of all, there must be informed consent. Every aspect of what you're doing as a proposed treatment must be explained, the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? Not so in gender identity research stuff. Clear assessment of benefits versus harm. The harm, so-called, in not uh, affirming is that the patient has a high risk of suicide. The problem is the high risk of suicide exists anyway. It's not made any worse. Absence of bias presented as you need to have a balanced approach where you do review those in indications that are counter to your proposal, bring them up in your proposal, and deal with them and show that your hypothesis might disprove them, but they will be included as a concept. None of that is being done in, in the transgender research that's currently going on. 
independence of safety by an institutional review board with stopping criteria at the very first sign of any adverse effect that affects the patient. So here we have cases already of adults whose lives have been totally, tragically ruined, committing suicide or standing up finally and, and opening up and writing books about how horrible their lives have been in, the, in this new transition state. That would be a stopping criteria for the study before it ever got started, but all of that is completely ignored. There's currently funded an NIH study with four centers in the United States. They're recruiting kids who are five years of age and older, and they are going to affirm these children in all ways, and at the end of five years, they're gonna find out if they're happy or not. The problem is there's no control group. They didn't choose 40 kids or 80 kids and divide them into two groups randomly and say, we're gonna affirm you, and then we're gonna use the other non-affirming criteria and psychotherapy and see what happens at the end of five years in terms of levels of happiness. There is no control group. That would not pass muster in any scientific venture anywhere else. And the evaluation of how successful you are is by asking the parents and the researchers how they have assessed happiness. Again, no independent evaluation of that at all. It's totally biased. It's going to essentially stop puberty, and we're gonna have a group of kids moving forward uh, that are treated by something that is an experiment for which they already are gonna get the answer they know they wanted. So the details of this study, you cannot find them on the NIH, NIH website. It's totally non-existent. You just have to know the study exists by reading about the, the claims that the study is starting and where they recruited patients from. So there's fallout in the local community. School boards are railroading through regulations without public hearings. It's happened here in Texas. It's happening in Decatur, Georgia at this point in the, in the Atlanta area. Large corporations are threatening, threatening to pull out of municipalities because of uh, thoughts of, of if, you, if you don't accept transgender rights, uh, we're not gonna do business with you and your community will fail. And then gender centers of excellence are actively treating patients from age three and up with affirming therapies cross-sex hormones after puberty blockers in advance of the data showing that it is at all safe or effective. It's already happening. So what can we turn, do to turn back the tide against it? We can always begin with a statement that truly shows that we are compassionate about these children. We do not hate transgender patients. We do not treat them poorly when they come to our offices. We are compassionate. We go to the root of the problem. We find the therapist. Uh, such as David, who will go back and look at the family structure and figure out the roots of the reason why this child feels they are in the wrong body. Uh, we will stand firm with our scientifically based convictions. We invite dialogue with the other side instead of just throwing bombs over the fence the way they do at us. We've invited them numerous times. They will not answer the invitation. And we join with broad-based group of diverse backgrounds we have in our side uh, lesbian activist groups who are totally and thoroughly disgusted with the concept of raising a child and affirming the wrong gender. Uh, sounds like crazy. We're, we're suddenly in partner with, with radical feminists, uh, but they feel that this, this, there's no science behind what's being done and they want to stop it as well. And then we never are afraid to discuss how our faith helps us in our decision making. And as, as scientists, the, the, one of the things I remember from my fellowship days is arguing with a fellow from Israel who was in training, and he said to me, you know, Quentin, the more we know about science, the more we know there is no God. And I looked right back at him, I said, Zvi, 
funny, but the more I know about science, the more I know there is God. So we encourage the victims of, of drug and surgical therapy to speak out. Renee Jacks has written this book, Don't Get on the Plane. If you look carefully, it's a trans world airlines plane from back in the day, very clever. It's high time that we point out that the emperor is naked. Thank you. There you go. Thank you very much, Doctor, for informing us because uh, many, I'm sure, listened and were really informed and now they can make an uh, honest and, and uh, right decision for themselves, not jumping into surgery just because your emotions and you feel that way, it might not be the right thing for you because... The 70% are not successful. That's a high rate. So when I say not successful, I mean as far as regret and suicides. It's very high. That's very high rate. Do you want to risk that? I wouldn't risk that. So hopefully I was able to help someone and save a life. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to visit politicalbombshow.cf, politicalbombshow.cf. And if you're a transgender going through some of the issues that you heard on the show today, we'd like you to get in touch with us so we can have you on the show so you can talk about it. Thanks. Come on, people, let's go. Oh, baby, come on, oh, baby, come on, so come on, people, let's go.